Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We're in a series called Kingdom Life. We are looking at how Jesus taught believers to live. Join us now as we dive into another passage. Good morning. There's an old saying that goes like this. Common etiquette says not to talk about politics, sex, or religion. However, as some comedian once added, but these are the most interesting things to discuss. (laughs) Well, some of you will be relieved to hear that I'm not going to talk about sex today. We'll save that one for another day. But you may be disappointed to find out I am going to talk about politics and religion, or at least God and government. You know, many of us have been raised to believe that the two should never intersect, but both our gospel reading for today and our epistle reading would suggest otherwise. That yes, God is indeed concerned about our view of government, and that for Christians, our faith will inevitably shape it. So let's turn to our gospel reading for today and see what we can learn. You're welcome to pull up uh, your Bible app or use your Bible, or you can use uh, the words that are on the screen right now. Just follow along. And we're coming towards the end of Luke's gospel. We've been in it for almost a year now. It's hard to believe. And Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards his death. And in chapter 20, we find some powerful people plotting against him. It's the Jewish religious leaders. In verses 19 and 20, we read this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now, although Luke's not explicit about who's doing the questioning, he just calls them spies, the version of the story in Mark's gospel is specific. And so we know it's some Pharisees and Herodians. And these two groups happen to be really unlikely bedfellows. Listen to how the commentator Kent Hughes describes them. There could hardly be two groups with such opposing outlooks. The Pharisees were nationalistic. They longed for the Messianic kingdom and the overthrow of the Romans. The Herodians had sold themselves out to the Romans and served as their well-cared-for stooges. The Pharisees represented conservative Judaism, whereas the Herodians were liberal and syncretistic in their convictions. The Pharisees were, so to speak, right-wingers. The Herodians were left-wingers. The Pharisees represented cautious resistance to Rome. The Herodians wholesale, wholesale accommodation. But they were cemented together by their mutual hatred for Jesus. The Pharisees hated him because he was disrupting their religious agenda. The Herodians, because he threatened their political arrangements. They both wanted him dead. It's a bit like having the DNC and the RNC conspiring together to take down a third party candidate who's making a strong run for the presidency. You just don't expect it, do you? But what kind of historical context would lead to such an unholy alliance at this time? Well, the Jews have been under Roman occupation and rule since 63 BC, almost 100 years by now, 100 years. And while there'd been early hopes that Jesus might be the long-awaited Messiah that had been prophesied to come, that he would be the one who would come set them free from the Romans, he isn't doing or saying the right things. In fact, he is undermining the authority of the Jewish ruling elites, the religious and political elites, more than their current Roman occupiers. 
And yet the common people, they love him. And so these people are going to have to be careful about how they dispose of him. They don't want to cause an uprising against themselves. So they plot to trap him into saying something that will get him in trouble with the Romans. This way they can hand him over to the authority of the governor, Pontius Pilate, and hopefully he'll have him executed. Then he can take the blame. And so they set about their dirty work, verses 21 and 22. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Notice how they seek to flatter him. Verse. It's a bit like the child who comes to their parents and says, you know how much I love you, Dad, don't you? You know how much I care. Perhaps they're hoping they're going to catch Jesus off guard, giving him the impression of being sincere in their quest for the truth. But Jesus sees right through their hypocrisy, of course. And he answers them with words that historians universally have said are the single most influential political statement ever made the single most influential political statement ever made. Verses 23 through 25. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he responded to them. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Taking a Roman silver coin, a denarius, worth about a day's wages, Jesus brilliantly undermines their plan. You see, the coin he asks for has an effigy of the emperor Tiberius stamped on it, as well as the words, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. As well as being a reminder of their Roman enslavement, it's this blasphemous insult to the Jews who believed in the one true God, Yahweh. No mere Roman emperor could ever take his place. And yet, as insulting as this coin was, legally they had to use it to pay Roman taxes. No Jewish currency would be accepted by the Romans. And so you can imagine how hated this form of taxation was, this poll tax that they participated in. But you can also see the predicament that this question puts Jesus in. If he supports Rome on the one hand, right, by saying the Jews should pay the taxes, his allegiance to Israel will then be questioned. But if he sides with the Jews by saying that they shouldn't, then he's likely going to be arrested by the Romans. Well, Jesus' answer then is masterful. He says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And we can tell how masterful it is by the response that he gets. Verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. These spies are dumbfounded. It totally shuts them down. But what is so amazing about it, you might ask? What's so amazing about that answer? So amazing that it silences them. So astonishing that it caused one young American lawyer reading the New Testament for the first time to come to this passage, to see Jesus' answer, to drop his Bible and exclaim, that is the most amazing wisdom. And as Christian disciples, why and how should it shape our view of God and government? Well, for the remainder of the sermon, I want to focus on these questions. And to do this, I'm going to break this statement into two sections. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. 
First of all, then, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. According to Jesus' answer, Christians are to obey the governing authorities. You see, human government is, in fact, deeply biblical. Consider the very beginning of Scripture. Genesis 1, verse 28, where God commands Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, to govern it. Yes, authority by nature reflects God's authority. And so whether it's founded on Christian principles or like the Roman Empire, pagan ones, or contextualizing for today, whether your political party is in power right now or they're not, we are to submit to the rule of government. Christians are called to be good citizens. In fact, the best of citizens. The Apostle Paul affirms this in our epistle reading today. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. According to God's word, the government we live under has been instituted by God himself, and there's judgment brought by God on those who resist it. So whether it's taxation or it's the laws of the road or maybe laws regarding education or health care, etc., etc., we are to submit to them. Now, I remember a time when this was difficult for me to swallow. I remember at the age of eight, uh, 19, I committed my life to following Jesus fully. And the Lord began to work on me in all kinds of areas of my life, including my passion for collecting music by all kinds of artists, such as U2 or Oasis or Radiohead, The Beatles, Pink Floyd, you name it. I wanted to own it. It was at a time when CDs were becoming more and more popular. There were no MP3 downloads at that time. But I was a student, and it was expensive to keep up with my hobby, with my collection. And so I would borrow other people's CDs, and then I would copy them onto cassette tapes and give them back. And in this way, I was very cheaply able to grow a massive music collection, something I was very proud of. But as I grew as a disciple of Jesus there was this nagging in my mind about those little words on the back of the CD. You know the ones? The ones that say the words copyright, right? <laughs> those copyright laws. And I knew that according to the laws of the land, what I was doing was illegal. Of course, I could justify it in all kinds of ways. You know, it, it doesn't hurt anyone, does it, right? Or they shouldn't make those CDs so expensive. Or I'll buy them one day. But the voice in my conscience, also known as the Holy Spirit, just wouldn't go away. God's word was clear on the issue. And as I stole from those musicians and their record labels, I was failing to be subject to the governing authorities. And so one day, I just got rid of all the copies I'd made. And I decided that I would never do it again. And it was hard, really, really hard. But the nagging voice went away and I knew that I had done the right thing. You see, whether or not we like the government or the laws they make and uphold, the governing authorities are instituted by God. And as we see in what Paul says next in Romans 13, even more than this, they are agents of God. Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So while government may not be a specifically Christian thing, it's good because it's carried out by an agent of God's choosing. And any form of order is certainly better than organizing society around unfettered self-interest. Now you might go, but hold on, Jonathan, hold on. What about bad governments and dictatorships? What do we do with those? Well, guess what? The Roman Empire that Jesus lived under was just that. He was under just that. There is no caveat in scripture that says, if it's a democracy, you obey, but if it's not, then you don't. Now, Christians are good citizens, even under bad government. Now, are there limits, though? Well, that brings us to the second part of Jesus' statement. We've had render unto Caesar. Now, render to God what is God's. What Jesus is saying here is that before being subjects of any government on this earth, we are ultimately subjects of God. As Pastor John Piper puts it, we are God's servants, not the servants of any government. We are free from all governments and human institutions because we belong to the owner of the universe and share in that inheritance, fellow heirs with Christ. We are aliens in the United States. We serve the owner of the world. And why is this? Well, scripture gives us numerous reasons. I mean, rattle through a few of them. First of all, God made us and bought us for himself. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because of his great love and his death on the cross, we owe him everything that we have. Secondly, we are slaves of no man or government. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Third, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3 verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, we are aliens and exiles on the earth. First Peter 2, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And finally, we are not at home here, but we await the Lord from heaven. We get that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our true king, our true ruler, our true leader is coming back. And so while we're to be subject to them, Christians are in fact free from the world and the governments that rule it. Yes, we still obey the ruling governments, but ultimately they have no real claim on us. And even if they persecute or torture or kill us, they still have no real power over us. Even death has no sting for the disciple of Jesus. But how we live under governments, however terrible they may be, is an important witness to who God is. Listen to what the Apostle Peter writes. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When we come to faith in Jesus, God doesn't remove us from this fallen world. Some of us wish that would happen, right? Like, Lord, I would love to, for this to be ended. I want to be with you now. 
But he sends us back for a season to be in these foreign structures and institutions of society to bear witness that these are not ultimate, but God is. Yes, we are his agents, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. As St. Augustine put it, Christ's servants, whether they are kings or princes or judges or soldiers, are bidden, if need be, to endure the wickedness of an utterly corrupt state, and by that endurance to win for themselves a place of glory in the heavenly commonwealth, whose law is the will of God. But what if governments ask us to do something contrary to God's will as revealed through Scripture? Should we resist them? Well, you know, authority may be good, but of course we all know it can be abused. Consider the Jewish rulers who commanded Peter and John to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 4, something that Jesus had just told them they were supposed to go and do. Well, the apostles disobeyed, and so they were jailed. And when asked why they ignored the order, Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. This example leaves some space for nonviolent civil disobedience when the government commands Christians to do something God tells us uh, to do or not to do. As Martin Luther King said when speaking of civil disobedience while he was accepting the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. The need for man to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to oppression and violence. And this was the witness of the early Christian church in the face of repeated oppression and violence from the Roman Empire, an empire that they submitted to, but not at the expense of their relationship with God. Many of them being martyred for being unwilling to renounce the Christian faith when they were persecuted and threatened with death itself by various Roman emperors. And guess what? The church grew incredibly during this time, from that first Pentecost with a few thousand believers to 300 years later having six million Christians around the Roman Empire. Six million. Their witness paid off, and the work of the Holy Spirit through them could not be stopped. Yes, we are to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but we are to beware of rendering too much to Caesar. And when we render to Caesar, we are to do it only for the Lord's sake. If we cannot, then we shouldn't. Our call is to serve God and his kingdom first, even if it means giving up our very lives. Now today, we're blessed in the United States that this generally isn't necessary, is it? But for many of our brothers and sisters in God's kingdom around the world, this is a daily struggle they face. And who knows, one day it might be here too. So what do you think? What's hardest for you about this story and about the other scriptures that we've just heard? What is hardest for you? You know, in an election season where seemingly we are so polarized and the thought of the wrong party coming to power is difficult for many of us to swallow. Perhaps it's the thought of paying taxes to support their agenda. Or maybe it's the idea of obeying laws that we don't believe in or don't agree with. Or perhaps it's accepting that God deserves our allegiance far above our country does. Whatever it is, 
the truth of Scripture should not be ignored. And however hard it is to accept and follow, for whatever seemingly good reason you have, we need to remember that God isn't asking us to do something that he isn't willing to do himself. Think about it. In Jesus Christ, he humbled himself, stepping down from his heavenly throne and becoming a man, entering this world at a time when there was no democratic government as we know them, and out of love for his creation, willingly subjecting himself to the rule of an occupying dictatorial government that ultimately had him unjustly crucified. As Bishop N.T. Wright puts it, when speaking about this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees and Herodians, the accusers have failed this time, but Jesus knows, and Luke's readers know, that they will soon succeed. The leading Jews are going to hand over to Caesar not only the coin that bears his image and his false title, Son of God, but the human, excuse me, the human who truly bears God's image and who truly bears that title. But in that act, they are unwittingly offering to God the one stamped with the mark of self-giving love. The cross itself is taken up into Caesar's purposes and God's. Caesar's favorite weapon, the cross, becomes God's chosen instrument of salvation. You see, God uses the worst of all situations and the most terrible instruments of torture to bring about salvation for all those of us who will repent of our sin and follow him. You see, God can use whomever he chooses, whenever he wants, wherever he wishes, under whichever form of government, however good or bad, for his forever purposes to bring about kingdom rule in the world that he's created. And as evangelical pastor David Platt, who ministers in Washington, D.C. itself, writes, even if we lose every freedom and protection we have as followers of Jesus in the United States, and even if our government were to become a totally, sorry, a completely totalitarian regime, we could still live an abundant life as long as we didn't look to political leaders, platforms, or policies for our ultimate security and satisfaction. Yes, we are to submit to the government we're given by God and to be good citizens. But ultimately, as Christians, we are under God's reign. And come what may, we are to give God the things that belong to God, which ultimately means everything we have, even our very lives. And in doing so, we will experience life to the full, not one day when we go to heaven, but here on earth, right here, right now. Today, then, will you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This is God's call upon your life, and is a witness to the world of who he truly is, the one true king. Let's pray. Oh, come, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God over all things, that you rule and reign in this universe, and you call us to participate in that. Lord God, would you help us to be good citizens here on this earth, but ultimately to be even better citizens of your kingdom in heaven. Lord, as we play our part in seeking to be people who share the gospel wherever we are, as we seek to be people who love others well, would you help us, Lord Jesus, help us to submit to your rule and reign in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.